how does one preach on some final greetings and a list of names like that, hey? Um, well, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you wrote a letter to somebody? Not a text, not an even an email, but a letter, handwritten letter. When was the last time you received one? I wrote one to a principal just last week to encourage him after what I think has been a pretty arduous term for anyone running a school, just to try to encourage him to keep on in faith and hope. And have you ever hand-delivered a letter to somebody? In person. In Paul's day, sending a letter was quite different to uh, the way we might do it. It was quite common for a letter to be written and for it to be personally delivered. There was no postie. Um, and we're very fortunate in the Lord's providence and wisdom, in God's way of continuing to teach us and reveal himself to us. We've got a collection of these very personal letters in our New Testament, particularly a number of them from Paul, written to individuals like Philemon or Timothy, or to churches like the one in Colossae. But to write a letter as Paul does here in these New Testament letters, it's not merely an exercise of Paul's apostolic duty, is it? Not all the apostles wrote letters. These are acts of love from Paul to communities of faith. He's showing his care, his concern, his teaching and encouraging and admonishing these churches. For Paul, it was a significant mode of his ministry. And all the more when he was imprisoned, he couldn't go about on his missionary journeys any longer. So writing letters was his only way really of keeping in touch and sharing the gospel and encouraging folk in the gospel. But every time he wrote a letter, more often than not, there was another gift of love that came with the letter. And that was the person who delivered it. Often one, two or maybe even more people. They, they weren't delivered, as I said, by the postie. They were sent by land or sea by person. Someone who had to travel a long way. It was quite a journey. It was no just dollar ten stamp or hit of the send key. Someone had to travel a long distance and be provided for food, provisions, to get there and maybe get home. And some brother or sister in the Lord would go about that ministry in sharing Paul's love to the churches. No big powerful cruise ships, no motor vehicles. It was by foot, by horse, by camel, by boat, by sail. And so to receive a letter in Paul's day was also to receive a person. A person into their midst, into their church, into their home. At least for a day or two, if not longer. Sometimes the person stayed quite some time and entered into the, the community of faith there. They served and were served by those who received the letter. And so here, with this letter to the Colossians, we have Tychicus, verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose. He's not just a courier. He's actually there with more news, personal news of Paul himself. That you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus has got quite a task, hasn't he? He's just travelled some 2,000 kilometres to get this letter to Colossae. 
That's like from here to Brisbane. Not on any Jetstar Virgin flight. By foot, by sail, he had to cross some water, and then he's got there. And with Tychicus comes one other fellow travel traveller, Onesimus, a fellow Colossian, a local, uh, who we're going to hear a bit more about later. And so together with his two letter-carrying companions, Paul sends his greetings from a number of his fellow gospel servants to the believers in Colossae. There is Aristarchus, who we don't know much about, other than he's a fellow prisoner with Paul. There's Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. They've already received some instructions, we're told, concerning Mark. We don't know what they were, but they're to welcome him. But actually, we do know a little bit more about this John Mark. Because this is the John Mark that we hear of back in Acts 15. Can you remember last year when we were going through Acts and Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways? And it was over John Mark because of Barnabas' cousin, John Mark. This is him. But it would seem there's evidence of some genuine reconciliation here as Paul's actually sending greetings and mentioning Barnabas himself um, to the Colossians. He's sending the greetings of John Mark together with his cousin Barnabas. If there was any bad blood between them, it seems that's been dealt with. Wonderful example of the presence of the gospel at work amongst their fellow workers. Reconciliation. Their own relationship has been restored. It does the church and its witness to Christ no good, does it, when there's bad blood or bitterness between brothers and sisters in Christ. And as the psalm goes, and we'll sing later, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Here's brothers who are separated in ministry now being restored. Just a little glimpse of that here in these final greetings. How was it Jesus said the world will know we are his disciples? By our love for one another. And so our witness to the world as followers of Jesus is tainted when our love for one another is destroyed. Going to hear more about that in the weeks to come. It's actually our next preaching series, Love One Another, after or from Easter onwards. Here is a testimony of that love bearing witness amongst God's own people, Paul, Barnabas, John, Mark. And I think it's all too easy to skip over these last verses of a letter like this and just think, oh yeah, that's just a bunch of names, Paul's final greetings, list them all up. No, there's actually wonderful glimpses of gospel ministry and gospel life here in the early church. And then we hear of Jesus, not Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus who is justice. And him and a couple of others are the fellow Jews with Paul, now Christians, his fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they're a great comfort to Paul. And then he sends greetings from Epaphras, who is actually the fellow who got this letter going in the first place. He's travelled from Colossae all the way to see Paul in prison, telling them what's going on in Colossae. And so Paul writes, and we read in Philemon that Epaphras is a fellow prisoner. He's been detained in Rome. And he mentions Luke, the physician and gospel writer, and then Demas. So there's a number of folk who are with Paul in Rome who are keen to send their love and their greeting to the members of the church in Colossae. And I've shared with Bob and Devine that they would send our love and greetings to the churches that they're preaching at this morning. It's just good to do that, to realise we're all in God's family together. But what strikes me in these greetings is not only that Paul sends greetings from those who are with him in Rome to those in Colossae, he also asks the recipients of his letter 
those in Colossae, to send his greetings to others who were there, in Colossae or in nearby Laodicea. And he mentions them, or at least some of them, by name. Verse 15, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters, to the church in Laodicea, and to Nympha, a woman who hosts a local church in her own home. It was the usual way for a church to gather. And then in verse 17, also to Archippus, who Paul obviously knows personally, because he exhorts him, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And then we've got the letter to Philemon and Aphia, probably Philemon's wife or maybe sister, which we heard read for us as well, sent at the same time as this letter to the Colossians. Now, why does that strike me? What's so remarkable about Paul asking his greetings to be sent to these individuals in Colossae? Well, as far as we know, Paul's never been there. And yet he knows these people. He's had connection with them. He's come across them somewhere in his missionary journey or heard of them. And he wants to establish, if it's not already established, some connection with them. He doesn't have Facebook or Zoom to connect with these people online. And yet he has personal knowledge of them. And he writes to them in such a way that he's making personal connection. And he wants to maintain that connection. He names them in these letters. And actually the Colossians and the Laodiceans were to swap these letters. The letter later to see it could be the letter to Ephesians. We're not really sure. Um, but however personal particular each individual church situation was, Paul wanted both churches to read each other's letters. And then there's a final verse of the letter, Paul's final greeting or sign-off, remember my chains, grace be with you. Probably the only sentence in the whole letter of Colossians that Paul's written by his own hand, the rest of it written by his scribe, or amenuensis is the proper name, Timothy. Now, as I said earlier, we sometimes just skim over, I think, these last verses of letters like this, or Romans got almost a whole chapter of it, and we don't really regard them as important as the rest of the letter. But I think the sheer number of people listed here and the way Paul names them and encourages them and shares in life together with them is testament to a number of things. Despite never being to Colossae, Paul knows these people. Either they visited him or they've crossed paths along the way in his missionary journeys. And the list here and elsewhere like Romans bears witness to the broad reach that Paul's ministry has had amongst, along, up through Asia Minor. And in a day where writing a letter itself was no five-minute task, sending a letter involved far more, as I said, than just a ten stamp or hitting the send button, Paul puts many of us to shame, myself included, in the efforts he goes to to keep in touch, even with people he may never meet again, genuinely relating to his brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Some of us do that really well, whether it's our neighbours or people in different countries. Others of us are quite happy just to have our own little local cohort and nothing further. But I think these greetings, these lists of people also testify not just to Paul's ministry network, it's not just that he's got connections all over the place, he's actually got genuine friends in the gospel. He's got genuine fellowship with other believers, not only in ministry matters, but in life and faith. In fact, he doesn't divide the two, does he? He's not a professional apostle on the side and have friends on the other side. It's all one life. In a matter of just a few decades since Jesus' death and resurrection, there's a growing and thriving global 
Christian community. And Paul knows a number of the people. And he wants to encourage them to maintain this close fellowship, connection, united in Christ, their communion together. Even if only through the writing and sending of these letters and the couriers, the people who took these letters to and fro. What we have here is not really just a list of final greetings, but an expression, the wonder and presence of a Christian community in action. And I believe it's a wonderful reminder for us today, highlighting the need for us to be in community, to be in connection and communion with one another and with others outside our own usual circles. Paul needed these brothers and sisters in Christ. He relied upon them. The way he speaks about Epaphras, about Aristarchus, about Timothy, even about Onesimus. He depended upon these brothers and sisters in Christ. God himself lives in communion, doesn't he? Father, Son and Spirit. And we've been made in his image, male and female. He created us, blessed us to be fruitful and multiply. And now in Christ, the body, the body of Christ, the church, often represented in the New Testament as the body with many members, but all working together, or as the family of God, with the spirit of adoption. All of that drives home our absolute need for us to live and work and relate together in life. And I wonder, I don't know if you've been thinking about this, but since the COVID pandemic, which began over two years ago now, and even here in South Australia, despite the fact we've just tipped our record numbers, restrictions are about to be lifted further. Do we realise just how much the pandemic has affected our lives? And how much it's affected how well connected we are with one another? Have we recognised just how much less we seek fellowship. How much easier it is to compromise on meeting together. Yes, when we needed a shutdown, church on Zoom and things like that, and live stream, how wonderful it is. It's a wonderful gift from God, and I hope you're enjoying it. And I think it's wonderful that we can continue to connect in any way we can. But let's not get comfortable wearing our PJs and our Ugg boots and having our coffee while we're having church online. Because personal interaction is really important, isn't it? Will we return to, or better still, will we go beyond what it was before in regards to how well we connect with one another, how we relate, how we keep in touch, encouraging one another in faith and hope and love, comforting one another? The pandemic has influenced and interrupted so much of our lives and it's gone on for so long that I don't know if we really know the true effect of it, the true implications of it. The Lord has kept us, and I pray he'll continue to, and we look to him for the days to come and work out what's the best way to love and be wise together in it all. And sometimes the lockdowns and isolation, it's almost obliterated, not just a sense of community, but the opportunity to meet together, hasn't it? Some of our families today, others are back. It's great to see you back. They've been in isolation for a week or more. I'm not sure we really know the long-term effects of the last couple of years yet. Teachers and students and families with children at school, this last term has been huge. It's been really, really demanding. We had one of our youth, he was able to come to youth group once this last term in 10 weeks 
because he was either sick or was a classroom contact all term. He could go to school, but he couldn't do anything else outside of that. While the rest of the world's carrying on. It's been really demanding. I'm not saying I've got a better solution, but let's not pretend that these things have no effect on us, because they do. And we need to be encouraged in them. Have you noticed lately just how much we mourn, we grieve now in isolation? Many folk have suffered and died in relative isolation, some out of necessity, but much because it just seems to be now the normal way to go. Apart from my own family, as pastor, I haven't been able to visit any person in hospital for the last two years. That's a big change. It's a huge change. And if not already, it's becoming the new normal. Some of us choose to be very private in our suffering and ailments, and that may be okay, but some of us don't have a choice. We need to work out how we're going to keep in touch in those situations, how we're going to encourage one another in Christ. We've been praying together with Don and Jill for their daughter Gay. She's allowed one person in hospital each day to visit. And her sister, wonderfully, has organised a roster to share, not that obligation, but that love to visit Gay with wider family and with friends. And there is someone every day, someone different, who goes and visits and spends that time with her. Not Christians. But they just love her. They want to support her. It's going to be a long road ahead. And she needs that support, that encouragement and that love and that friendship. Christians need friends like that. You and I need, Christian pastors need friends like that. Paul needs them. We need people like um, Paul to Archippus here saying to pastors, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. People who are suffering and dying on their own need friends like this. We all need friends like this, gospel friends. We need one another. We need community. We're made for it. And we're going against the grain when we're apart apart from it. Yes, at times, with the pandemic, the best way we've been able to love one another, sadly, has been to stay away. But that doesn't mean we have to stay silent, does it, to one another, or not connect. So many other options we have today. I don't think it beats face-to-face, personal relating, but if that's not possible, there's plenty of options. Pick up a pen, write a text, write an email, talk, video, it's all there. I know we are never alone. God is always with us. He's told us that he'll never forsake us. But God also said it's not good for man to be alone. We need a companion, not only to have some company, but to actually to fulfill the purpose God's given us in life. That's what Genesis 2 is all about, actually. Not just because Adam was lonely. Adam needed a companion in order to fulfill the task God had given him. Two are better than one. Ecclesiastes 4 tells us that, not just practically, not just because they're more efficient in the task or providing help or warmth, but it's together that we live and grow and thrive as God has intended all along. And as the song go, before he planned the world, he made, he planned a few individuals? No. Bunch of loners? No. 
Before he planned the world he made, he planned his family. That's who we are by the grace of God. And that's how we're to live. So can I encourage us, can I urge us, as Paul does here, to Philemon later on, we'll hear about that. I need to hear this myself. I know how easy it is sometimes. Sometimes it's easy just to sit in a study and prepare a sermon than it is to actually go and be with people. Sometimes you're sort of all peopled out, aren't you? Sometimes we need to push past that too. Let's be deliberate. Be intentional with regards to friendship and our fellowship together. As I said, I need to hear that. I think we all need to hear it. And in the midst of maybe the end or whatever of a pandemic and how it's working out now, we actually need to be intentional to actually realise what has happened and how can we then move forward together and in communion together. Let me give you a couple of examples of what that intentionality might look like from our own fellowship. I'm not going to give away any names. We've got home groups, we've got Bible studies, we've got prayer groups and other gatherings, and I want to strongly encourage you to consider joining one of them if you're not already, online or in person. But actually, I want to give you a couple more personal examples than that. One of our folk who's lived on their own for some time used to make it their practice, and I think they still do to some degree as they're able. Instead of doing their whole shopping for the week on one day, they would do it in bits and pieces. Why would you do that? It's not efficient. It's not convenient. Well, they would do that just to make sure that on days that they knew they weren't going out to see other people, they would have to go to the shops and at least relate to one other person so they wouldn't spend the whole day on their own. Not easy, definitely not efficient, but extremely healthy. There was an intention, there was a deliberate discipline put in place to make sure there was personal connection. And I think how wonderful that would be. Extremely healthy. Another example, one of our folk who shared with a group of men a few years back about his own struggles with mental health, he shared how in his darkest moments, and even when he felt himself slipping into those dark moments, he would feel like shutting himself out, doesn't want to let anyone in, just wants to be on his own and hide in his own cave. And I think we all know something of what that feels like, don't we? But he knew, and he shared with us his other fellows, he knew that whilst he knew that's what he felt like doing, he knew it was the worst thing he could do. Because he would just keep going down that spiral, darker and darker and darker. Against almost every fibre of his being, he knew it would be better for him to actually get out and relate with someone, even to just one person, and not be on his own. And at times he needed help and encouragement to do that, sometimes a good kick up the pants from his wife or a good friend. And he actually asked us, those who knew him well, to be that person, to give him a good boot of grace up the backside sometimes, to say, come on, up you get. We need friends like that, don't we? Do you see what I mean about the need for community and communion and love together? Our Lord Jesus himself in his darkest moment just before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, needed to be alone in prayer with his Father, as we all so often do. But as he went there, he took his disciples with him, didn't he? And three of them, Peter, James and John, he took even closer. He took right further up and only a stone's throw away, he would go away from them. And even as he shared his time alone with the Father, he asked his disciples to be with him there doing what? 
to cover him in prayer. We need gospel friends like that who will pray for us in our darkest hours, to be watchful in prayer. Isn't that what Paul, we heard last, Paul pray last week? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, and pray for us that God may open a door for the word. Paul knows he needs the prayer of the saints to go on in life and ministry. And that's what we hear about dear Epaphras, the one who's gone to visit Paul, now with him in Rome. And Paul writes to his uh, Colossian brothers and sisters, he says, Epaphras always struggles on your behalf in his prayers, that you, the Colossians, would stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. What a friend to have. What a gift the Colossians have got in Epaphras. Not just someone who prays for them, but who struggles in prayer for them. So let me state the obvious, or maybe it's not so obvious to some of us. If we all need friends like that, for that to take place, not just the logic and maths, uh, just the logic and maths of it actually means we need to be friends like that to someone else. If everyone needs a friend like that, then it needs to be reciprocated, doesn't it? Otherwise, only half of us are going to have friends like that. Do you know what I mean? Partners in the gospel, partners in prayer, fellow servants, brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God, growing, maturing, living in faith and hope and love together. Let's not let the pandemic and all its influence and effect on our lives dictate our relationships. Instead, let the gospel and let the love of Christ COVID may have determined how we relate to one another at various times, face-to-face, with masks, without, in person, online. But let's not let it determine or destroy the fact that we relate and share together in life. How could you do that today, tomorrow, this week? Even those of you on the live stream, in isolation, How can we be deliberate about having communion with others in life and faith? Families with teenagers, word of warning, if you haven't realised it already. We often do sort of pre-marriage stuff and maybe some prenatal sort of stuff. We don't do pre-teenage stuff. But if you haven't realised it or not, your lives change as children get a bit older and all of a sudden their calendar dictates what you do rather than your calendar, they just coming along for the ride. You know what I mean? Is that happening in people's lives? A few nods. Make sure as your teenagers grow up, and I don't know whether we did this well or not, but their life is bigger than just their school and their sporting stuff. Their world needs to be bigger than just that. Their worldview needs to be bigger than that. I think we've just heard from one of our young people. Her world's quite large, isn't it? And sometimes needs a bit of wisdom and discernment to know what to cut out, doesn't it? (laughs) Christ is bigger than that. Now, I was going to spend less time on that and more on Philemon and Onesimus, but I really felt we needed to hear that encouragement just from Paul's greetings here and the fact that we need one another. So I'll be brief here with regards to Onesimus, which which I actually think is another example of the need and the, the thriving life of Christian community and true fellowship in the gospel. 
Onesimus is a runaway slave. He left Philemon. We don't exactly know why. Maybe he did something wrong. Maybe he felt Philemon mistreated him. But he's taken off. And he's actually taken off quite a way, hasn't he? He's travelled the 2,000 kilometres to Rome where Paul is. That's a fair distance to run away. He must have been really scared. And in a nutshell, in the book of Philemon, Paul's letter to Philemon, he's appealing to Philemon to receive his errant slave, Onesimus, back. Not as a slave, but as a fellow brother in Christ. Here is Christian community separated by 2,000 kilometres. The ministry of reconciliation actually being worked out amongst brothers in Christ. Paul advocating for a fellow believer. Ever had to do that? Ever stepped up and done that? Appealing to another one. Not afraid to get involved in another person's life. I think many of us are afraid to let others get involved in our personal lives these days. Maybe too busy, maybe too ashamed. That's not what gospel life actually is. Perfect love casts out fear. This is for love's sake, Paul writes to Philemon. Philemon himself is a man of faith and love. He's been a great encouragement and comfort. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through him. He's possibly a leader in the Colossian church. Paul himself has received much joy and comfort from his love. Not sure how. Philemon, Paul's never been a Colossae, as far as we know. But he's received joy and comfort from him. And Paul, the ever gospel-hearted teacher and apostle, doesn't abuse or overreach in his apostolic authority here. He could command Philemon as an apostle, but he doesn't. He appeals to him in gospel love. He wants Philemon's own heart and decision to be shaped by love for Christ and love for Onesimus, not out of guilt with this letter from Paul. He wants his decision to come from a gospel heart, not a guilty one. And so what we have here in this short letter to Philemon really is a tremendously personal insight, very human insight into the early workings of the early church and how the gospel affected their relationships. This is the ministry of reconciliation being encouraged and worked out, we trust, in the lives of two people. Monesimus' name, actually a common name for a slave in the day, actually means useful or profitable or beneficial. And Paul sort of leans on that a little bit. It's a bit of wordplay. He says, up until now, he's been useless to you. He might have been a half-reasonable slave, but he took off maybe with something of Philemon's. But now he can be useful. He's been useful to Paul. And now he can be useful to Philemon, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And actually the words for useless and useful actually sound a little bit like Christos, like Christ. Onesimus, useful, was formerly a Christos, useless without Christ, but now he is Christos, useful with Christ. So would you receive him back, Philemon? Would you forgive him his debt? If he owes anything, I'll pay it for you. This Christian love fellowship thing actually costs a bit sometimes, doesn't it? Paul's willing to bear that cost. Sacrificial love. Onesimus himself has been a great encouragement and use to Paul as a support and companion in the gospel. He's actually a little bit hesitant to send him back because he'd rather receive some benefit from him himself. 
And there's more than a whiff of a hint there from Paul to Philemon saying, look, if you really do want to share in the ministry of the gospel, you'll send Onesimus back to me, actually. But here's the truth of Paul's words in Colossians 3 being put into practice in very tangible ways. There is no longer Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Onesimus is no longer only a slave to Philemon, he's a fellow brother in Christ. And Paul's appealing to Philemon to receive him back as such in Christian love and forgiveness. Because that's what the power of the gospel does. It transforms lives, it transforms hearts and unites us in a way that we were never united before. In Christ, we're no longer defined by our race, our gender, our status or position. Those things are all still there. But in Christ Jesus, we're a new creation. And we are one. We are all not just equal partners, but brothers and sisters in the family of God together. That's what Christ has done for us. That's the glory of God in the gospel of Christ at work in the church, in his people, living together in love. And that's actually everything that's at stake when we don't live in that love and unity together. The glory of God is at stake and our witness to Christ as the church. We've got our young ones in with us this morning. Children, who could you write a little note to this week? Who could you write a little card or letter to? You've got a friend somewhere you want to encourage? Maybe they're unwell? Who could we? What would Paul say to us if he wrote to us like he did to Philemon? Have we got someone we've held at arm's length and need to receive back in Christian love and forgiveness? Who could we encourage and comfort? Maybe with just writing a letter to somebody this week. I'll leave it there with the words of Paul and a little bit from Hebrews. Paul finishes, I think he's a very shrewd, wise teacher, finishes with these words to Philemon, I'm confident of your obedience, knowing that you will do even more than I say. I'm confident of yours too in Christ Jesus. And so as the letter, the writer of the Hebrews exhorts us, and I think as these final greetings of Paul reminds us, let's not neglect meeting together, but instead consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, encouraging one another in faith and hope and love. Amen.